0: I remember Pastor Toby asking us to stand during the reading of God's word. I think that's a good practice. So if you have your Bibles, would you please open them to Ezra chapter 5? We're in Ezra chapter 5, and this morning I'll ask you to stand for the reading of the text. In chapter 5, we'll be looking at verses 6 through 17. Remember as I read that these are the words of the Lord. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, it is being built with huge stones timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We're the servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, and he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away all the people of Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazzar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, "'Take these vessels, go, and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem,' And let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazer came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in building. And it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. And thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And as you do so, we will pray and ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, we come before you asking for your help as your people. We need help to hear from you. It is by the power of the Spirit of God that you promise us. You would teach us out of your word. And knowing that we have that word in front of us in its completed form, without error or fault, we still need the help of the Holy Spirit to understand and apply it rightly. Help me to speak what is true and help your people to hear what is true and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, one of the most influential books in shaping the minds of leftist ideologues and Marxist zealots for the last half century, and which has been ignored and even in principle supported by the broader evangelical movement, is Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, a pragmatic primer for realistic radicals. If you are over the age of 12, whether you know it or not, you have without a doubt come into contact with and likely been challenged by these ideas. Here's a sampling of some of Alinsky's rules for radicals. He says, Power is not only what you have, but also what the enemy thinks you have. He goes on to say that ridicule is man's most potent weapon. There is no defense. It is almost impossible to counterattack ridicule. Also, it it infuriates the opposition, who then react to your advantage. Finally, one more. If you push a negative hard and deep enough, it will break through into its counterside. This is based on the principle that every positive has its negative. Now, these may sound pretty dark to you. You read the rest of them, they are. There may be some shrewd as serpents thoughts going on here, but there's not a lot of harmless as doves. It's no wonder that in the opening pages of Olinsky's book, he writes an epigraph that reads as follows. Lest we forget, he says, lest we forget at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the very first radical. From all our legends, mythology, and history, and who is to know where mythology leaves off and history begins, or which is which? The first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively that he at least won his own kingdom to Lucifer. Now you see where this comes from. I have bad news for you, Mr. Olinsky. The kingdom that Lucifer at least won has been overthrown. Amen. He's been bound by the new king of the universe who with his own feet crushed the devil's skull pretty graphic image. I know no one in here is necessarily a fan of the passion of the Christ, but the best scene in that movie is in the opening of the garden where the snake crawls by Jesus' feet and steps on its head. Excellent, excellent visual image. This whole idea of being a radical, in the way that Alinsky argues, has been exposed as really ill-advised. Now, this morning's sermon is about responding to the radicals. We, who are building Christendom like the exiles were in Ezra's day, in a ruined city and surrounded by enemies on all sides, we are to build in a way that gets kingdom work done and takes the fight to the gates of hell. That's what Jesus promised. His church would take the fight all the way to the gates of hell of hell. Now how are we supposed to do that? That's one of the main reasons that we're looking at Ezra. We're trying to discern what are God's tactics and plans for us in our day to build the kingdom of Jesus, to advance the cause of Christ. Well, let's look together at the text. I'm going to break this up into three different sections. I want to begin by looking at verses 6, 7, and 8. Now as I read the text this morning while you were standing, Some of you may have said to yourselves, this sounds really familiar. I feel like we've already read this before. It's kind of like the Yogi Berra quote, deja vu all over again. Back in chapter 4, we read another letter that sounds almost identical to the one in front of you this morning. The one from chapter 4, though it precedes by one chapter, the letter that we're looking at today was actually, if you'll remember, I said written 50 or so years earlier, or excuse me, 50 or so years later. We'll go over why in just a minute. But let's look at some of the similarities between these two letters briefly. Number one, both letters start out the exact same way. In chapter 4, verse 11, if you've got it on the same page, you can let your eyes glance over there. This is a copy of the letter. And of course, this morning in the text in verse 6, This is a copy of the letter. Both letters address the crown. Let it be known to the king, 4 verse 12 and 5 verse 8. Both letters repeatedly warn against the rebuilding work and the projects that are ongoing in Jerusalem are finishing up. We're warning you about this. And the response from Artaxerxes towards the end of chapter 4 alludes to the powerful kings of Israel. The response from the elders in chapter 5 speaks of Solomon, one of the greatest, perhaps many would argue the greatest king of Israel in those days in verse 11. Now this is a big hint as to why Ezra arranged things the way that he did. He's saying to his readers, look brothers, at how similar our situation is to the situation that these exiles who came back first Eighty years ago was. Very similar situation. If God could deliver his people once, can he not do it again? Now, good Bible students, those of you maybe who have been reading through Ezra on a weekly basis, you might argue at this point that though there are similarities in these documents, you could make an argument that the latter opposition, that is what we read in chapter 4, is a lot hotter than what we're looking at today. The oven in Jerusalem hadn't quite gotten to cooking temp at that point. The folks involved in the latter opposition made slanderous rumors of sedition and rebellion. They wailed about the loss of taxation and territory and devolved into name-calling, ridicule, like we talked about. They're rebuilding this wicked and rebellious city from chapter 4, verse 12. Remember, ridicule is the most potent weapon. There's no defense. By contrast, the folks bringing the earlier opposition in today's text, what we're reading today, what's essentially happening to come against them? Their enemies are wanting to fact-check their claims. That's really what it boils down to. They need to see the building permits. I'm confident that what was intended by these remarks, who are you, where'd you come from, where'd you get the permission to do what you're doing, were supposed to frustrate their purpose. There were probably veiled threats. I'm sure there was name-calling and bluffs being made and called. But honestly, from where you sit today, if you read chapter 5, verses 6 through 17 that letter almost comes across like a compliment. Huge stones, timber in the walls, diligence, prosperity. I wouldn't mind somebody trying to accuse me with those very same words. Remember, beloved, there may be no defense against ridicule, but there's also no eternal reward for it either. I heard a pastor say one time that desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. Intimidation and manipulation shouldn't sway the children of God. God has called us to be faithful men and women and to keep our heads down and do the work And the history that he writes will end up telling the real story. Rest assured that faith in Christ alone and diligent service to him puts you ultimately on the right side of history. You can see it play out right here in front of you in the text. Now, look at what these exiles were caught doing. Let's take a closer look at their actions. Number one. They were said to have been building with huge stones. The Hebrew term here for stones that you see in verse 8 is derived from another word meaning to roll. So these were likely those mega stones that had to be rolled over logs by huge teams of men into place. In other words, the exiles weren't trying to hide what they were doing. And it wasn't intended to be a temporary job. It was meant to be permanent. You also see there that they were putting timber in the walls, which probably would have seemed unusual to Persian building standards. But the Jews were following the prescription of Solomon's temple from 1 Kings chapter 6 using three-part stone and one-part timber. They were unashamedly devoted to keeping the commandments of Yahweh laid down in the former scriptures. So the faithfulness of God's people to the task he gave them right here in front of us, once we familiarize ourselves with it, is on full display for us to see. They are being faithful to the God who gave them these words and the encouragement to build. Now I'll stop and ask a question at this point. What is it that stops the ridicule of the enemy? How can we build to maximize Jesus' glory and undermine the slander that may come from all sides? Number one, our faith and our efforts in Anderson County should be public. They should be public. They should be known. They should not be hidden. I was taught in seminary that one of the chief exegetical fallacies of pastors is to overlook the obvious. Think about it for a minute. God put the old covenant temple on a mountain. He put it on a mountaintop. He could have put it anywhere. He could have put it in a valley. could have put it in a cave. He could have put it on a barge in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Or he could have put it online Zoom meetings with masks required. But instead, he chose to make his Old Testament dwelling on earth in a place where everyone could see it. In fact, interesting fact, some people, geologists and others surmise that at one time all the continents of earth were formed together in this supercontinent they call Pangea. You know, all the and, and everything kind of fits together like a puzzle. If you actually push that Pangea all the way together and you look to the center of all the continents, Jerusalem is roughly in the geographical center. Of the entire world. God was not hiding what he was doing. When these exiles went back to Jerusalem to build, they weren't given options for relocating God's house. It was going to be in that same public place. Nobody came to the priest and said, you know, times have changed. Yahweh worship isn't as culturally acceptable as it used to be. We better dial down this "fill the earth" rhetoric. You know, we need to be careful of harming our witness with presumptuous microaggressions. I don't know these huge stones were macroaggressions. What? Build back the temple on the Mount of God? Won't we be accused of Jewish nationalism? Now, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, God relocated to his permanent home, not in a temple but in the hearts of his people. Praise God. But Jesus says, and he is careful to teach us that the mountaintop metaphor stays the same. In the new covenant, we are still a city on a hill. From Matthew chapter five, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, if there is anything in you that wants to work on the kingdom of Jesus, but you'd rather do it according to the standards and the edict of Hillary Clinton which is in your house in your head and in your place of worship only by the way Hillary Clinton did her dissertation on Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals you don't if that's the way that you want to do religion i want to share jesus but i'll make sure to do it in my heart in my head and in my house maybe my place of worship You do not understand the Christian vision. When Jesus talked about candles and tables and cities on hills, he did not have in mind this silly idea of a private-only religion. He did not. The public nature of most Christians' faith today is barely more noticeable than a Gideon Bible at your local chiropractor's office. It's on the bottom shelf of the coffee table. It's underneath some magazines, hoping that somebody will... Look under there and see it. Christians feel this way because we have bought into another one of the rules for radicals. You push a negative hard enough and it will break through into its positive. All growing up, did you, like I, hear things like Christianity, good for the world? It's been so bad for the world. It's led to wars and stealing and mass executions. Have you ever heard what really happened in the Crusades or the Inquisition? Wasn't Hitler a Christian? Christians are so divisive. They're supposed to love each other. And how many denominations do they have now? 20,000 or more? How could such a sectarian group know the love of God? How many more Christians need to get divorced or OD on drugs or caught beating or molesting children before you get it in your head that Christianity is bad for the world? I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing that sort of thing all the time. And though I believed that the Bible was true, it was the Word of God, I found myself having a hard time refuting that kind of negative, that ridicule. What was even worse Evangelical pastors all across America embarrassed about church history and the failures of the church retreated to tacitly teaching their sheep the head, heart, and house of worship only nonsense. Like a father embarrassed about his child's illegitimate pregnancy and needing to cover up the mess of her failures by sending her to the local Planned Parenthood, pastors have been embarrassed about the difficult stories from the past, and so paid for the abortion of a faithful biblical public faith by pe- preaching only private pietistic religion. Beloved, Jesus said to us, Let your light shine before men. The next time you're in a situation where you are tempted to keep your faith to yourself, go ahead and get it out. It may sound awkward and feel unnatural, like the first time that you ask a girl out, guys. It's going to be weird. It's going to feel a little unnatural. Some of you may have read John's story about how he uh, went into the public library here in Clinton and addressed the librarians. And you may have been squirming, like, whoa, he actually said that? Those people are going to hell. They're going to die and live an eternity apart from God and have a millstone tied around their neck because they're leading little ones astray. You don't have to give an entire presentation of the gospel every time you share your faith. You can give enough to challenge them to think on sin and their need for a Savior and let God's Spirit lead them and prompt them to more questions. And then do it again. And then do it again and do it again. Make your faith public. Did you notice in the Song of Moses this morning, we're all fond of singing? Let the earth stand in fear. Let their proud hearts melt away. When they see and when they hear what the Lord has done today, how will they hear unless somebody goes and preaches? The businesses that we build here in Anderson County should also be unashamedly Christian. Our dealings in the community should be known to be unwaveringly Christian. Our mercy ministries here, like drug rehab and recovery shelters, should be seen to be, in every principal way, Christian. We ought not feel ashamed to serve in our community as the servants of King Jesus, the elders have thought about asking a couple of men each month to attend the county commission meetings so our church can be a part of the process of making Anderson County abide by the law of Christ. Our leaders should not just see us come over there when the libs are lighting their hair on fire over abortion regulations. They should see us there often as people who care about them and their hard work. And we should be there to publicly inform their consciences from the Bible as Christian citizens, not just citizens who happen to also be Christians. The point of conversation over lunch today could be how you sense God wants you to take your faith Into the public square. Well, one other thing I want to see before we leave verses six through eight not only should our work in Anderson County be public, but it should be built to last. It should be built to last. Our God is an eternal God, and we should endeavor to build things that reflect that eternality because they stand the test. Of time, The exiles were building with the huge stones, not because they wanted to flex on their Samaritan neighbors, but because they expected that what they built would last. Again, the public indoctrination system has bred this kind of wisdom out of Christians. Look at these huge buildings that the Roman Catholics built over in Europe. What a waste of money and manpower. And for what? so your church can be the most beautiful in the land? The architecture of the dark ages was just a competition of pride to see who could have the biggest and the best. Some of you are going to have a hard time hearing what I'm about to say, but that is actually ahistorical and profoundly untrue. You and I were taught that it was all about the Pope and his glory and all about money and all about politics... And sure, there was some of that in there. Gothic and medieval architecture, however, was endeavoring to represent, through construction and building, the holiness, transcendence, and glory of God. The art of 500 years ago is without question beyond the ability of any modern artist It was intended to exalt the beauty of Christ with the expectation that God's kingdom would endure. Now, is that how you think about your family? Are you thinking how the world has taught you to think from paycheck to paycheck? Or are you thinking about getting debt free and paying off the mortgage? Or are you thinking about how to invest in property and means of increasing your wealth so that your children will own and live on land that you've purchased and your grandchildren will one day inherit and continue the mission of God here without worrying about house payments and debt at all. Have you considered a household economy, creating a business where you can be around your wife and kids and the family works together on mission for Jesus? The Industrial Revolution, you know anything about history, the Industrial Revolution took the father out of the home. Businesses were, for a long way back, centered around a home economy. The Industrial Revolution takes the father out of the home, and then who follows? The mother. And the children are sent to the public indoctrination of the state. When we read Proverbs 31 and we read about this woman who was so productive and had all these side hustles going in order to bless her spouse, we read it and we think, look at this independent woman who went and invested all this stuff and used all this money that she had and did all these things. That's not the way the Jews would have read it. They would have known that she was a vital part of the home economy that was already going. She was taking what her husband brought home to build with, and then she increased the glory of it. That's Proverbs 31. The Jews would have understood her as working alongside her husband's mission to make it even more fruitful. Now think about how this could relate to schooling. Most people hear homeschool, and the freedom to homeschool is a gift from God. But one of the weaknesses in the homeschool movement is that it tends to be matriarchal in its institutionality. It is mother-led rather than father-led. All right, immediately your objection is, Chris, didn't you say that the fathers should delegate responsibility to their wives and not get in the way of those under their charge? Well, yes, I did, but not entirely. The command for a woman to be a keeper at home is given to the wife and she like the proverbs 31 woman will do her husband great honor by excelling in that role including helping to assist with the children's education but when jesus commanded the children to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the lord he didn't give that command to mothers he gave it to fathers chris how am i supposed to do that when i'm away from work all, when i'm away at work all day And this is why generational thinking and household economies and productive property are so important to work towards. They build something that lasts. They put fathers back in the home with their families where they can lead not just the children but their wives. And they can especially focus on raising godly sons. Well, let's look at the answer that's given by these exiles in verses 9 to 15, you see here at the beginning of the letter that there was a, a writing to Darius and these men, Tatani and, and Shetharbozenai and, and their associates, greeted him and told what the Jews were doing and then here's the answer that the Jews gave them back to report to the king. In verses 9 through 10, we read the same two questions that we heard earlier What are your names? Who gave you permission to do this? Which, by the way, the qualification... We did this, O King, for your information. We just wanted to take down their names so you would know who to go and spank. You know, that kind of thing. Oh no, we were just thinking of their benefit and your kingdom. No, there's no anthrax in anybody's mailbox, okay? Back in 1 Peter 4, I mentioned that persecution is a part of the liturgy. But our focus this morning is on the response of the exiles. How do they react? Well, in verse 11, they give an unapologetic answer to their enemies. They don't hide what they're intending to do. There's that public faith coming again. In other words, they are acting in the way that God's people should act. We are to stand, deliver the gospel, and we are always ready to give a defense. 1 Peter 3.15 The exiles call Yahweh the God of heaven and earth. And Cyrus and Darius may have thought that the Jewish God was a divine being who ruled over a certain province or territory. But Cyrus and Darius would not have called him the God of heaven and earth. This has implications in the coming verses. In verse 12, the exiles don't shrink back from their dirty past. This is our origin story. This is where we came from. This is how far we fell, which is significant because Darius would have responded to his conquest of Palestine with something along the lines of, my gods beat your God. My gods beat your God. My gods are stronger than your God. But that's not what the exiles are saying. They're actually challenging him. No, the reason for this is not because of what you did, but because of what we did. It's because of our sin. We broke the covenant, we and our forefathers. God judged us by you in spite of you. In verses 13 to 15, they don't stop there in classic Paul Harvey form. They share the rest of the story of God's mighty grace for them and how he delivered them from their adversaries to this land to begin building again. It's important to see here that the people are making a claim to work as ordered by the Lord. And that claim will be tested. More on this in just a minute. What can we see here in these verses to help us in our gospel work in Anderson County? In responding to the radical in our community. Our work here in Anderson County, firstly and chiefly, is a gospel work. Notice I said chiefly, firstly, primarily, not exclusively. Jesus has commissioned us to go into all the world and preach his gospel and then disciple those to whom we preach. And look at this. If you were to summarize verses 11 through 15, they would comprise in the New Testament a standard confession of one's salvation in Christ. A standard confession of the gospel. We are servants of the Most High God, the disciples of Jesus Christ. We and our forefathers were lost in sin and misery under the divine and righteous judgment of God. But God, in His mercy, stepped down from heaven in the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ, the King over all kings. And through his life and death, freed us from the penalty that we rightly deserved. Set us free from the captivity and bondage to that sin in order to make us slaves of righteousness. Working alongside him to build his kingdom. For everyone here today who is in Christ, this is your story and this is your song. So make it public because it follows that we should be praising our Savior with the continual proclamation of his gospel all the day long. Brothers and sisters, nothing will stunt the fruit that we see in the proclamation of the gospel of Anderson County. Proclamation of the gospel to Anderson County like our being ashamed of that gospel. The kingdom of heaven is here. It is a city on a hill, public and built to last, so why not proclaim it? Do you believe that your proclamation of the gospel, strong or weak, do you believe that that proclamation of the gospel can be used by God to bring dead hearts to life? I remember a story from Spurgeon's younger life. I think this was Spurgeon's younger days when he was just starting to preach and he was seeing Little to no fruit in his congregation as he preached each Sunday. He asked a trusted older pastor, What gives? The reply was a a sagely one Do you believe that people will be saved through your proclamation of the gospel? Spurgeon hung his head and said, No, not really. And then comes the reply. That's your problem. Hear me, beloved. I'm not saying that God is powerless through the gospel until we try harder. Like he's waiting around for us to fake it until we make it. But here's the question that we have to answer this morning. In the moment of your proclamation of the gospel, does your faith have anything to do with how God works through that proclamation? Have you ever wondered at the stories in the Gospels where people would bring the sick to Jesus and he would heal them not because of the sick person's faith, but because of the faith of those who brought them? In Luke chapter 5, there's a paralytic that's lowered into the crowded room to be healed by Jesus. I'll read to you exactly what the scriptures say. And when he, that is Jesus, saw the men who had lowered the sick man, when he saw those men's faith still up in the rafters, when he saw their faith, he said to the sick man, Listen to this, man, your sins are forgiven. Wait a second. He saw those guys' faith, and he forgave the other dude's sins? Now, beloved, we are Christians. We believe that we are saved by our faith in Christ alone. So what's Luke teaching here? He's teaching that our faith in Christ blessing our labor matters. It matters. And this shouldn't be a shock to anybody You're told to pray in faith because praying and believing God for answers to your request means that you are more likely to get those answers. James says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable In all of his ways. So we're saying that prayer can be effective by faith, but the proclamation of the gospel cannot be used by God to be effective in faith? This is a leftover from American individualism. We're trying to maintain someone's private, personal autonomy to choose apart from anyone else's actions. They can't be prevailed upon by any outside force or else there isn't a genuine choice. But God ordains the ends and the means. And he does use our faith in the proclamation of the gospel. So the next time we go to the library to speak to the librarians, we can and should believe that they will hear what we're saying, be convicted because we're proclaiming their sin and the salvation in Christ, and that they, even in that moment, could respond in faith and repentance. That they could walk over to the shelves and start taking those books out with threats from the other librarians that they could be prevailed upon by the police to put those books back. But no, they said, I am repenting. I'm taking these things down. I will not let this literature be passed out anymore. That can happen through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's no reason to believe with the God that we serve in heaven that when we proclaim that gospel, he won't work through that proclamation to save sinners. This is what we believe. We're Christians, so let's believe together. Our work in Anderson County is primarily a gospel work. But secondly, I want you to know that gospel power through a consistent life is very strong. Gospel power through a consistent Christian life is very strong. Over the past several weeks, I've spoken frequently about our failures and God's faithfulness to us in those failures. Please don't hear me saying that there are no good reasons to strive for holiness over time. The exiles give their testimony in verse 12, not shying away from their bygone sins. But how would their work have been hindered if they were found to have sin in their camp? Imagine the scene down at the local Judean County Commission meeting. The Jews speaking to their Samaritan governing officials, our God beat your gods. But don't look at my tent because I still have some old statues in there that I get out from time to time. You know that there are idols everywhere in our world today, beloved. Yes, the material kind are out there the money, the stuff, the body, the drugs, the sex. But what about those sins that we don't really think are that bad? What about jealousy? As long as you keep it hidden. Or pride or anger. What about unthankfulness? Our children are reading through the Exodus story where the people are making their way through the wilderness, they were grumblers. They were unthankful. What about judgmentalism? What about covetousness? Nobody knows, except for God. Don't forget the twin cult goddesses of prestige and prowess, or the Molech God, who still gladly accepts child sacrifices, that is, autonomy. And don't forget that massive hydra serpent licentiousness, whose heads are never in agreement and ultimately eat and devour one another. What Christians need today is true repentance that leads to a sustained life change through abiding with Christ, which we are promised comes with increasing measures of victory. This is what author Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. I've been going through this book over the last week. I posted some quotes online It's been challenging me in all the right ways. Here's a quote that's relevant this morning. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. While there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. And this is the very thing, beloved, that we as Christians today have been taught we can't do. Again, another of Alinsky's lies surfaces incognito in our thinking. Power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. Most Christians today have bought into the lie that their flesh still has the power to control their desires and actions when the New Testament says exactly the opposite. Paul said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He said that we were buried and raised with Christ in order that we may walk in newness of life through that death of Christ, our slavery to sin has been broken and we have been set free from sin. Sin now has, Paul says, no dominion over us since we are not under law, but under grace. We now have the ability to present our members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And we are promised that If by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. This only comes through the powerful work of Jesus Christ in each of our lives. Take this idea of a long obedience in the same direction. How can you apply this walking out the door today? Number one, stop thinking about being totally sanctified and start thinking about sanctifying today. Stop thinking about being totally sanctified and start thinking about sanctifying today. Listen to the words of Romans 8.13 again. This is from the Legacy Standard. For if you are living, present tense, according to the flesh, you are going to die, future. But if by the Spirit you are putting... To death, the practices of the body, you will live. Paul was telling us to live in the here, live in the now, live the victorious life through the Spirit in the closest thing to eternity that we have the present. You ever thought about that? You've never lived one moment of your life in the past, and you will never live one moment now of the future but you've always existed in the present. This is where we were meant to be. We're made for eternity. Now this is going to take time, church. You aren't going to get this total victory over pride or covetousness or lust or a mean-spiritedness immediately. God has delivered people miraculously from strongholds of their sin before, but it's not the norm. What's the one thing, what is the one thing that you need to get out of bed each day and with the help and blessing of the Lord Jesus and by His Spirit put to death that day. I will not lose my joy in front of my kids today. I will not entertain thoughts about how blessed that other family in the church is. I won't insist on having the meals always go my way, getting my portion, my share. And then go that day and start a pattern of one day at a time, Being consistently victorious over sin. And it builds over time, day on day on day. There is great gospel power in a consistent Christian life. And when we fall, and fall we will, we repent, we cling to Christ, we go right back to work again and again and again every day. Now, in conclusion, and you knew this was coming. If our faith is going to be public, if we're going to build to last, if we're going to proclaim the gospel with boldness, and we are going to start to live as consistent Christians in this lost and dying world, our claims to faithfulness in Christ will be tested. What's going to happen when these radicals see our public faith? What's going to happen... When we proclaim the gospel, regardless of the consequences? Will all our problems go away when, by the power of the Spirit, we start stacking day on day of growing faithfulness to Christ our King? Of course not. When the student learns the material, now it's time for the test. Look at verses 16 and 17. The Samaritan locals tell the king that the foundation of the temple has been laid and the work is ongoing. And that they need some proof that this was actually supposed to happen. In other words, they put their claims to the test. Because we serve a God who loves to see the proof of his people's faith through the fires of testing. Let me say that again. This was intended for wrong, but God is doing it for good. He wants to see the proof of his people's faith through the fires of testing. You know that Abraham was tested by God when commanded to offer up Isaac. You know that God tested his people in the wilderness when there was no water to drink. He tested them when commanding them to go into the promised land full of milk and honey and lots of tall people. He tested Samson and Samuel and Saul and King David and all of the kings of Israel. Listen to this, beloved. God the Father even tested His own Son when He sent Him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights with the devil. What does the Scripture say about us? Again, from James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or tests of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God gives us faith in order to test that faith which grows into a steadfast faith culminating in a mature faith because without faith it's impossible to please God so why the trials over the last year in Anderson County because Jesus loves you and wants you to be ready for the wedding day If that was Christ's intention, do you think he's going to fail at that task? He cannot. He will have us sanctified. He will have us ready for the wedding day. This is what Jesus is doing in every Christian here, right and now, with all the sorrows and trials and tests you have been and are going through. He's helping you get on your wedding dress and get your hair done and look beautiful for the great day. Because, beloved, he loves you. This morning you sang, Father, all my earthly aims in time will turn to dust. All those things that we turn back to, I can get to kingdom work once I get this thing done. Or Lord, once I install this appliance or fix this thing in my house, then we'll be able to move forward with kingdom. Lord, don't you see? I've got these things to do. Help me. But all of our earthly aims ultimately are going to turn to dust. But what is he teaching us that loss is so often gain for those who know his love? All the treasures of this world, what you're trying to amass, complete, get to that point. Ultimately, those things will never satisfy you. They're a test that God puts in your life. Yes, I need you to accomplish these things, but will you still put me first? Will you still seek me above all other things. Why? Because he alone is endless joy. So cling to Christ. Embrace the fact beloved that the trials that you are now facing are not losses but gains to get you closer to Jesus who himself guarantees to make you holy and without blemish. Christians are considered by many to be radicals of the world. So let's act like it today by giving Christ everything, by laying ourselves on the altar before him to be a living sacrifice, to be made perfect and beautiful for his work. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word to help purify and sanctify us. It is so difficult to learn the lesson that loss is gain. It is so difficult to be tested and value. A faith, which your word testifies is more valuable than the most precious gold, is really what is worth building. Above all else, that faith in Christ and clinging to Christ is what will help us to sustain walking consistently day by day and proclaiming the gospel to our neighbors and those whom in the past we have been ashamed to share it with and building to last. Lord, as we prayed in weeks past, continue the test until we learn the lesson, until we are truly satisfied and content in Christ. But Lord, please do not leave us to do it alone. Send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.